The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. Great to have you along with me tonight. Whether you're watching on the YouTube stream, the Twitch stream, you're listening to a broadcast somewhere, or maybe the podcast, we welcome you and thank you for being part of our community. We've got a very interesting show tonight. Most of you have, if not all of you, have heard of the Tiger King and an individual by the name of Joe Exotic. Netflix presented a, I guess it's a docu-series. It was, I don't know, four or five episodes of uh, a story about a man who had what is considered to be a roadside zoo. He bought and sold exotic animals, particularly big cats like tigers. He bred them. Um, and ultimately, he got into a bit of uh, um, uh, conflict with other similar big cat owners, which resulted in allegedly, and he was convicted of this, uh, a murder-for-hire plot that put him behind bars. Well, somebody who was actually involved in this story, Carney Ann Nasser, is our guest tonight. She'll be talking about her role as an attorney and how she got involved in this case, what she knows about the Joe Exotic slash Tiger King case and operation. Plus, she's an animal uh, activist attorney and uh, talks about endangered species and the like. So we're going to have a very interesting conversation, particularly if you've seen the Tiger King series on Netflix. I've watched the whole thing. It's just bizarre. It's really just bizarre. And... Um, I'm not sure what to make of it completely. All I know is that Joe Exotic is in prison, and he is supposed to be serving a 22-year sentence. There was talk for a while that the president was going to pardon him. That seems a bit far-fetched. However, um, it is a story that that has a whole bunch of twists and turns, and it just it's it's you know they say the truth is stranger than fiction. This certainly proves that to be the case. So again, we'll have uh, Carney Ann Nasser joining us in just a little bit here on the on the show. Make sure you do subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, just find JV Johnson on YouTube. Subscribe there. There's no fee or anything for that. If you're on our Twitch channel and you uh, follow, that's free. Uh, we'd like you to subscribe there as well. There is a fee for subscription on Twitch because you get some bonuses. It's, it's ad-free to begin with. Secondly, you get access to some special emotes and, and some inside stuff. Uh, if you have an Amazon Prime account, you can actually subscribe to the Twitch channel for no fee just by linking your Amazon Prime account. You won't get charged anything for that. It's, it's a uh, perk of having Amazon Prime. Because Amazon actually owns Twitch, if you didn't know that already. So it's a great way to participate, particularly in our weekend programs, because Twitch is going to be ultimately the only place we'll do the Friday and Saturday night shows, and we'll do the rest of the week on YouTube, and that's how we'll split it up. Let's take a break. I'll get uh, our guest, Carney Ann Nasser, on the line with us, and we'll begin this conversation. I'm excited about it. It's beyond reality, and we will be right back. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our guest tonight is Professor Carney Ann Nasser. She's a big cat expert and also an animal protection attorney. She pitched the wildlife trafficking, trafficking case, case against Tiger King. You know who that is, Joe Exotic. And it triggered an investigation leading to his conviction for multiple federal crimes and a 22-year prison sentence. If you've watched the Netflix special, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't watched that special, you are probably in the minority and you probably still have heard or seen something about Joe Exotic. Uh, Carney Ann, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's really great to have you with us tonight. Thanks for inviting me to be on. I'm excited to be here. How did you get interested in First of all, just animal protection in general, but particularly the big cat part of this. No, it's interesting because I was just listening to a podcast with um, with Simon Sinek, who wrote the book Start With Why, who that's been widely know, covered, and he has a TED Talk that a lot of people have seen. And he talks about like going back to what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were like five or ten years old. And when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I also wanted to be um, like a, a law enforcement officer. I wanted to like achieve justice. And, but I had this passion for animals. And um, that evolved over time. And here I am, an animal protection attorney. Um, and I'd always had an affinity for big cats, but it really is more fortuitous that I ended up practicing law and advocating for creative legal strategies to to help advance the legal interests of big cats who are exploited for entertainment used in the wildlife uh, trafficking trade. So, um, you know, it's just some of it serendipity. Some of it, I think, really started when I was a very, very young child. But um, I was fortunate to get one of the few jobs in animal protection, working for an NGO. And my first job in animal law was really directed at shutting down Ringling Brothers Circus, or at least um, getting them to stop using exotic animals like like big cats and elephants. And that was a decade ago. And here we are now. Uh, You use the word luck. It sounds to me like it's a lot less luck and a lot more hard work on your part to have blazed that trail. Uh, what's the saying? Um, good luck comes to those who work hard or something like that. But it sounds it's like you're a meeting of, of prep when preparation meets opportunity. I think. <laughs> uh, what is yeah. it about? What is it about animals of all kinds? I mean, I know personally I'm older now, but um, you know, I scroll through Facebook or whatever and you just see these animal uh, videos. Some of them are cute and happy and some of them are cruel and they turn your stomach. But as children, we often find ourselves drawn to animals. Not everybody chooses that path professionally, but there's certainly a connection between humans and animals beyond the fact that we're all biological that um, is kind of magical. It is. And I think that, um, you know, I think that kids have just this innate compassion for and curiosity about animals. You know, I have three kids and I see them. Um, You know, it's not something that has to be taught. Um, they're just inherently 
interested in and compassionate towards animals, I think that over time it's something that they get desensitized to. And unfortunately, we lose a piece of that over time. We have to desensitize ourselves so that we can um, you know, eat, you know, I mean, yeah. I'm a vegetarian, but like, you know, that's just, there are pieces that kind of get chipped away at over time, whether it's what we wear, what we eat, like it's the entertainment we, we, we pay to see. And so we have to kind of turn, you know, use some blinders in order to be able to, to do some of the things that are very normal in our, in our society. And, um, but with respect to kids, I think that we, um, we see just this like inherent, um, love of animals. And I think, I think all people love animals. I mean, there's been a lot of polling on this, actually. I believe it was Gallup that did polling and it's virtually all Americans who agree. I mean, how, where can you find any issue that 98% of Americans yeah. agree on? It's animal issues. And, you know, anim- they be- we all believe that animals should be protected from cruel treatment. We believe that there should be laws to protect animals and to punish people who, who treat them cruelly. So these are, these are just fundamental values that we are, are pretty universal, at least in our culture. And um, so it's, you know, the, my work, the work that I do when people understand what a roadside zoo is, when they understand what goes on behind the scenes of that cute tiger cub selfie, people then can wrap their brains around it and, and understand, oh, this is cruel treatment. This is what I, this is part of my value system is not supporting these industries. So, um, but yeah, I mean, people love animals. You're right. There's, you know, animal, animal images. I mean, there's, there's a reason that, you know, cat memes are the most popular. <laughs> so that's just, uh, I, I, I will I will have to say maybe sometimes they're a little too popular. <laughs> At least on my Facebook feed, I'm like, boy, there's yeah. so many cat. Me-. And um, but right. I actually pick on my friends that do that because it's fun to pick on my friends yeah. regardless. Um, Absolutely. What what <laughs> you kind of mentioned this? Uh, you know, this desensitization desensitization that happens to children, and, and it happens not only with this topic we're talking about. It happens to a lot of topics. Children are born with an optimism and um, an innocence that gets eroded by a lot of things. But let's yeah, this ana- yeah. this love for animals. I don't know that it ever goes away. But you brought up the fact yeah. that we actually have to eat, and yeah, there's a food sure. chain, and there's a hierarchy, and you know we've got a lot of domestic animals that we raise, and they're not raised mm-hmm. in particularly good conditions most of the time. Yeah, uh, that we yeah. need in our food supply. How do we reconcile that? Yeah, you know, and and I say, you say this with totally no judgment. You know, my husband is an omnivore. Like I don't, um, I, I. Um, it's just it's just a reality that you know when we talk about how we interact with animals the most the most frequent interaction that people have with animals is the animals on their dinner plate yeah. um and i think that we all can get behind the concept that that animals deserve to be treated better and i see that we're we're moving in that direction that's just that's something we can all get on board with and i and i really i think that a lot of consumers have been um, have not been given a clear picture of what goes on to their food before it reaches. Their, and I think I think a lot of them probably don't. Grocery store. I think a lot of them yeah. feel ignorance is bliss too. Here in this, they don't yeah. want to know, right? Sure, it, it's true. You know, it's 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 more comfortable to think, oh well, my hamburger comes from 
Whole Foods, then my my hamburger came from a cow named Sue. You know, right, like it's right. not. It, it once we once we um, you know put names and faces to to anything. This is not just true of animal issues. Anything once we start seeing faces and putting names and experiences to any situation where there's injustice or suffering, then it becomes harder to harder to to palate literally. Um, and so, um, but we're seeing a lot of change. We're seeing a lot of, of states of Colorado just passed a, a law that's going to, um, to ban um, the use of the tiny caging for egg-laying hens. And we're seeing a lot of, of states driven by consumer demand for change and how animals are confined, because it's truly the confinement on right. these industrial farms that is um, – is, is just extremely cruel. And it's not only cruel, it's an issue of food safety and public health. And here we are in the midst of a global pandemic. And at the heart of it is a lot of how we confine, trade, treat, and consume animals. I hesitate to ask this question. I'm going to ask it. You answer it the way okay. you feel appropriate. Okay. And that may be no answer right. whatsoever. Um but you mentioned the pandemic when we were yeah. when we were originally told about this this uh, yeah. virus coming from China. It, we were told it was it was being transmitted in a what was called a wet market, I believe, right. uh, yeah. where very strange, at least strange to us, animals were bought yeah. and sold mostly for food. What do you know about these wet markets? And it seems based on this experience, we're learning that that is a really bizarre and in many ways cruel practice in itself. Well, it's problematic, and there's a couple of different kinds of markets. Like, there are wet markets that are, um, you know, just general live animal markets. And you have a variety of different species, and they're not just restricted to to China. You know, China's sort of borne the brunt of a lot of the focus lately, but, um, but they exist in Africa. We have wet markets here in the United States where you can buy live animals for consumption, um, they're, they're truly all over the globe. They're also wildlife markets. And this is something that where we've seen, um, really an uptick of in places like China where wild animals, exotic animals, even bringing it back to tigers, um, you know, are sold where the parts are sold, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally, um, but this is, you know, it all, the whole issue of wildlife trafficking and trade and wet markets and pandemics is all interlinked. Um, so, so the issues that we discuss related to the humane treatment of animals or to, um, you know, the conservation of species at large, um, and their presence in wildlife trafficking and trade, it's it's beyond just um, just issues surrounding their treatment and and you know uh, interest in keeping them alive on the planet in their in their native state. Um, it also relates to you know our own health issues as well. So um, it's it's a really complex, um, but it is you know it's it's interesting that the first animal the first non-human animals here in the United States to have confirmed cases of COVID happened to be tigers in captivity up oh, in the wow. Bronx Zoo. 
Um, and that sort of brought everything full circle for me during quarantine because, you know, you had the Tiger King come out um, and then this suddenly, you know, people are captured by their sudden exposure to the bizarre subculture of dangerous animal owners in the United States. Um, and then you have COVID-19 and then you have COVID-19 in tigers. Um, but yeah, this is something that I know there's a lot of research now being done about how to end wet markets, how to put an end to the wildlife market, the live wildlife markets. Um, that are frequently the epicenters of a lot of the a lot of the diseases that then jump from animal species to humans. One of the things we've been hearing a lot about recently is genetic engineering on animals. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think of that? What is the position of uh, uh, people who, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know what to call, it, but animal rights activists? I guess is the only thing I can think of. I know you represent a lot of these ideas. What is the opinion of of this approach to altering the genetics of animals for food, for uh, beasts of burden, whatever it happens to be? Yeah, well, one of the big problems in the, from a welfare perspective is that those animals are not protected under any federal or state laws. Um, animals are who are raised for food um, animals who are being used for inter- research to, whether it's genetic research or to try to um, pursue a better fiber or food, whatever it might be, um, are not subject to the protections of the Federal Animal Welfare Act, which means that during their lifetime, there's nothing to protect them from any type of cruel treatment um, you know, including the inherently cruel industry standards. You know, it's uh, sadly the way that farming is done is no longer farming. Yeah. It's, it's really intensive confinement, denial of everything that's natural and important to an animal to the point that they suffer psychologically, physically, medically, very, very much while uh, during their short lifespans. But, um, but you know, the, the basic premise in you know, the animal welfare world is to improve the treatment of animals, regardless of whether they're used for companion animals, like our dogs and cats, or whether they are um, being used for entertainment, for food supply, for fiber. Um, That's a welfare, you know, improving the treatment. Um, In the animal rights community, it's an abolitionist community. The, the fundamental values there are that animals are not ours to use for entertainment, for food, for clothing, um, for experiments, or for any sort of exploitative purpose. And so that's sort of the, the spectrum of, you know, how we see, and we see a lot of animal rights groups pursue welfare legislation, knowing that there's going to be a long time before we turn away from the use of animals, say, for clothing. Um, it's just, you know, evolving. But, um, you know, I think that the, a lot of people would be surprised to know that um, that animals raised on factory farms are excluded from all protections wow. of the Federal Animal Welfare Act, and 98% of the animals 
used for food in the United States are excluded from the protections of the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. So that means that 98% of the animals, which are birds, um, who are killed for food in the United States actually could be killed in any manner um, without violating the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act because they're expressly exempt from any legal protection whatsoever. Um, are there any good players in this? I mean, are there any uh, companies that you can point to that uh, take an ethical approach to this? You know, I mean, so so my career is pretty is pretty niche focused on on exotic animals and endangered species and the wildlife trafficking trade and and exotic pet trade and that sort of thing. So, you know, I'm I'm sure that there's a a range of companies that do. Um, better than others. You know, I know there are brands like Ben and Jerry's, for example, which is now, of course, owned by a large conglomerate, Unilever. But, um, you know, as a brand, Ben and Jerry's has always been very socially conscious. And um, there are, you know, so there are some brands that are just doing more generally than others. Um, But, you know, it's, it's something that we're not we're not farming in the way that we think about with the like rolling green hills and pastures yeah. and and happy cows. You know, there's yeah. um, there's a reason that 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 advertising had to go away because it was simply not true um, and very misleading to consumers who have a right to know about the conditions, the cleanliness, the treatment of animals who they then end up purchasing for food. So, um, and the industry is running as quickly as it can to enact laws or attempt to enact laws that would further um, shield them from visibility and public scrutiny. So we see laws like um, these ag-gag laws that thankfully many federal courts are overturning um, for violating First Amendment. But um, an ag-gag law is a law that prohibits anyone from you know, videotaping or photographing anything that happens um, on a factory farm. Wow. And, you know, and this is how we find out about what's happening is usually it's undercover investigators going in because the, most of the factory farms don't want people to know what's happening. They don't want people to know what it looks like on the inside because it would shock the conscience of most most people. Um, so, so th- luckily, we're seeing some positive um, legal precedent set there with judicial opinions um, overturning many of those laws. But, um, you know, I-, I think we're seeing change, and I think that a lot of the change is coming at the consumer level, um, people who are demanding more access to, to plant-based um, options. We've seen this reported heavily during the during the pandemic and during quarantine that because of um, shortages of meat production that right. people were exploring more, and the the consumption of plant based um, substitutes has gone up. And it's good for it's good for us and our health. It's good for the animals. It's good for the environment. You know, factory farming produces more pollution than all forms of transportation combined. So, you know, this is you know gradual good steps in the right direction. So. We're talking tonight with Professor Carney Ann Nasser. 
She's a big cat expert, also an animal protection attorney. We're going to be talking about uh, the Tiger King case, Joe Exotic, that whole thing in just a few minutes. We're just trying to get a sense of uh, the the state of of the world as it relates to animals, particularly exotic animals. Carney Ann, you talked about using these animals for entertainment, and you specifically talked about circuses. I know that for a long time, circuses were a highlight of uh, American culture, maybe around the world. I know American culture anyway. And in many case, it was, cases, it was the only exposure people, many people would have to animals beyond what were, they'd find in their backyard. Um, where's the line between what would be acceptable use of any animals for this type of entertainment uh, and then unacceptable use? The only way to get a multi-ton elephant to dance in a circle or stand on her head is through the constant threat of physical punishment. Right. And that starts when these animals are mere babies. Um, and the same is true of an apex predator, like a tiger or a lion. These animals are cruelly confined. Um, elephants are, are ripped away from their mothers shortly after birth. They're isolated. Um, they're, they're tied down. They're beaten with fire poker-like bull hooks. Um, which then go on to serve as a reminder of what will happen to them if they don't do what they're told. So it's not unlike Stockholm syndrome. It's a system of learned helplessness where animals depend on their abusers for food and care, but they spend most of their lives chained or in cages. Um, And, you know, at least with respect to the big cats, Frequently, the only time they spend outside of a, a tiny transport cage is during the very short, you know, minutes-long performance. When they then they just go back into the small cage, they're denied everything that's natural to a tiger or an elephant. You know, in the in the wild, an elephant would um, live in a close-knit matriarchal herd and walk up to 30 miles a day. And in circuses, we see, you know, they're spent, they spent most of their time chained. That's why we see a lot of head swaying and unnatural behaviors in elephants. You know, one of, we were talking about memes and, and videos on the internet about mm-hmm. animals when we first, um, when we first started our chat. And, you know, one of the ones that drives me the craziest is there's a video of an elephant swaying her head and there's a guy playing violin. And, you know, people love to share it. Well-meaning animal lovers share it and say, oh, isn't this wonderful, like the elephant's dancing. Well, if you pan out and you see this elephant and you look at the video from before he gets there, she's swaying and never stops. Mm -hmm. She's swaying before the music starts and she's swaying after it ends. It's called stereotypic behavior and it's a sign of long-term psychological suffering. And this is what happens with elephants who are abused and used in circuses and other entertainment acts. Um, And, you know, while we're talking about pandemics um, and zoonotic illnesses, elephants, most elephants in the United States have been exposed to or treated for M. tuberculosis, which is highly transmissible to people. Yet you see circuses selling families rides on the backs of elephants when they know that direct contact isn't even necessary for that tuberculosis to spread. So that's, that's something, you know, all of these issues come full circle. None of these are, um, 
you know, none of them are just an issue of animal protection or animal rights. We have really serious public health and, and safety issues as well. Um, you know, with respect to big cats, you know, I was doing a big cat rescue of like a cub who had been found chained in someone's backyard in uh, Louisiana. Um, I live in New Orleans and I got a phone call and this cub was found chained in somebody's yard. We have a very clear law against big cat ownership here in the state of Louisiana, unless you're Louisiana State University, of course, or an accredited zoo. And, um, you know, law enforcement officers had been executing a warrant and they saw a tiger chained in the backyard. And so um, when I got to uh, when I when I got the call and then, um, you know, cat ended up being rehabbed at Audubon Zoo in New Orleans before being um, transported to a reputable, wonderful, accredited sanctuary outside of San Diego, um, you know, I was trying to talk with everyone about the circumstances and find out more about what had happened. And even without any direct contact with that cat, I still got ringworm all over my face. So that's, and that's very common with the, like the cub petting and handling, like these animals are transmitters of a lot of different, um, zoonotic diseases. So, um, it's much more complex than just the issues of animal abuse that are inherent, but, but you can't get, you can't tame a tiger. You can't take the wild out of a lion. Um, you know, you can, you can beat them into a certain level of submission, but they're always going to be ticking time bombs, particularly since they've been subjected to such abuse and denial of their natural behaviors. So is the, is the line then, uh, based on, performance if you if you have these animals and you're forcing them to perform some unnatural act versus an accredited zoo that puts these same animals on display for people to watch enjoy understand learn about is 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 that the dividing line here well there are still some zoos in the united states that use um bull hooks uh, and circus style handling of elephants um, I know, you know, un- unfortunately for, for a long, long time, Audubon Zoo is one of those zoos. Um, but we've seen, you know, the Pittsburgh Zoo get cited for violations of the Federal Animal Welfare Act and how they handle elephants. Um, and so, you know, it's great that um, there are accredited zoos that are doing better. I know, you know, particularly the Detroit Zoo uh, made the decision to completely close their elephant exhibit, you know, recognizing that it's fundamentally impossible for um, a zoo to provide for an elephant's complex needs and optimal welfare just on the tiny postage stamp of space that most zoos have. You know, there's, there's no zoo in the United States that has enough space for an elephant, but many of them want them because they're crowd pleasers. So, you know, the Detroit Zoo sent their elephants to the Performing Animal Welfare Society sanctuary. It's one of two sanctuaries that has elephants, two true sanctuaries for elephants in the United States, um, where they live on dozens and dozens of acres. Um, So, you know, the, the issue isn't just with being how they're, how animals are trained 
to do tricks, um, how they're abused in order to learn to do completely unnatural behaviors. Um, it's also with the denial of things that are really important to particular species. You know, elephants, unfortunately, in the zoo system are traded around like baseball cards. In, in the wild, females stay with their mothers and their sisters and their aunts for life in these matriarchal, matriarchal herds. So when you take elephants away from their family members, when you, when you move animals around just for breeding purposes without regard to who they're bonded with, um, you know, there, there are other welfare issues there too. Um, and so, you know, I have many friends within the zoological community and I have a lot of respect for what they are doing and what they're trying to do. Um, but there's a spectrum of zoos, just like there's a spectrum of, of any sort of captive situation for animals. But, you know, the fundamental, the fundamental important thing, which I see really right now only reflected at the accredited wildlife sanctuaries, the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, GFAS accredited sanctuaries, is that the animals are not being used for commercial purposes. They're not being forced to perform. They're not being ever used for any sort of direct contact or entertainment opportunity. They're never taken off site unless it's for veterinary purposes. Um, they are there aren't people aren't allowed to just have unfettered access to the facility, buy a ticket and wander around. It's a very controlled environment where the animals really do have a refuge and a vast species specific habitat that can provide for their fundamental species needs. Um, so these are some of the fundamental sort of cornerstones of what, what's necessary. And, and a lot of facilities in the United States, most, in fact, um, what we would, you know, call zoos are unaccredited menageries that are run by people who don't have any background in um, zoological sciences, who don't know anything about the animals. They're basically collectors or hoarders who have decided they want to open their doors and charge a fee. Yeah. Um, and they don't provide for, little, I mean, they don't even know what the animal's complex needs are. So, um, you know, there's a range of captive situations in the United States. I, I just a quick answer to this one, um, and I hate to put you on the spot about this, but yeah. um, you know, uh, Disney's uh, um, what is it? Uh, the Magic King, not the Magic Kingdom. Um, Disney World. Disney World has a yeah. park called Animal Kingdom, and I've right. been there with my kids several times. They seem to take a lot of pride in how well and how naturally they treat their animals. Do they do it right? Do you know? You know, for me, I you know I'm an animal rights activist. And I just, I'm not on board with the use of animals for any type of entertainment. I think that, you know, we aren't educating our kids when we display animals in environments that don't enable them to exhibit their natural behaviors or act naturally. Yeah. So it's from my perspective as a mom, as an educator, and as somebody who loves animals, like it's not educational, it's not ethical to use animals for entertainment and they belong in their natural habitats, you know, and I hear a lot of people respond with the, with the quip that, well, in the wild, there's poaching and, and there's, you know, a lot of bad things can happen in the wild, but, you know, the possibility of something bad happening in the wild doesn't justify 
the guaranteed psychological suffering that complex animals like elephants and great apes and, and big cats suffer in many, if not most, of the captive situations in the U.S. All right, let's talk big cats. Um, first of all, give us a sense of what's going on in the natural world with these big cats. They're endangered. How endangered? Oh, they're highly endangered. I mean, tigers have been on the endangered species list since the early 1970s when the Endangered Species Act was first enacted in the United States. So, you know, tigers have been dwindling in their wild populations Um over the last century, we've seen the wild population of tigers dwindle from 100,000 down to around 38,900. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's a dramatic decline. Um, and so we've also seen there are three species of tigers who are subspecies of tigers that are totally extinct now. And one of the remaining um, six only exists in captivity. So that leaves five who um, actually still exist in some population in the wild. Um, so they're they are they're in critical um, condition in terms of their wild population numbers. While that number is very scary, what is it in in terms of uh, a trend? Is it still is it still declining? Has it leveled off? Are we seeing a bounce back? Is, is there any hope there? You know, I'm always hopeful. You know, I always, I always have hope. Um, the, it's, you know, it's. I hate to be give such a lawyer answer, but it <laughs> depends. So, um, there are populations because we're talking about five different subspecies, and they they live in different different ranges. So we have, you know, Amur tigers in in Russia and parts of China, and we have the Malayan tigers, Malaysia, and different different subspecies and different populations, Bengal tigers in India and Nepal, um, these animals will see like upticks in certain populations when there's really, um, you know, when there's a super meaningful focused effort on wild conservation and support for the local populations. I think, I think a lot of people would be surprised that a lot of wildlife conservation is actually humanitarian. It's supporting local communities and helping them um, find ways to protect their livestock so that they're, you know, when these big cats come looking for food that they aren't, you know, attacking the, the, the livestock and then, you know, endangering the livelihood or survival of villagers who then take it out on the big cats because they want to eliminate the threat to their own their own um, livestock. So, you know, so much of so much of conservation work is humanitarian at its core. Um, and I do have hope. I, I, I think that I think that if anything that we've learned, particularly right now, I mean, we're getting a really we're having to come face to face with a lot of areas where we can do better. Um, a lot of social issues, um, a lot of environmental issues. And, you know, this is but one of them. And so I I think we're seeing um, a lot more awareness raised um, across the board with issues that deserve our attention. Is there any value or truth to the argument that by breeding these animals in in captivity, we can help avoid extinction? There's. 
there's no truth in terms of the breeding that we're doing here in the United States right now. In fact, in fact, you know, if you ask any of the accredited zoos, who are the only ones breeding purebred subspecies. Um, and I'll, I'll explain more about what I mean by that in a second. But they'll tell you, the first ones to say, like, we're not breeding to do reintroduction into the wild. You know, that is, it's cost prohibitive to do that. It is very, very unlikely that it could be successful. So that's, that's already acknowledged that's a given. But what is happening on the roadside zoo side and what people are getting duped into believing by a lot of these roadside zoos is that there's any conservation to the tigers they're breeding at all. And there isn't because roadside zoos and circuses breed generic tigers. Generic tigers are not a purebred subspecies. They're crossbred. And they have, you know, as acknowledged by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and as acknowledged by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and all conservationists and, and big cat experts, they have no conservation value whatsoever. There are no wild populations of generic tigers. So even if they were being bred for reintroduction, there's nowhere to reintroduce them to because there's no population. They represent no population of tigers. So, um, and, and, you know, this is something that if for, for people who saw a Tiger King, um, Tim Stark, who um, had been running Wildlife in Need Roadside Zoo, whose who's license to exhibit animals was just permanently revoked by the U.S. Department of Agriculture for chronic um, mistreatment of big cats and other animals. You know, he said in Tiger King, well, you know, just if our numbers are dwindling, then just breed more in captivity. And, you know, it's very misleading to viewers because it sounds good and very simple. But it's not because what these roadside zoos and circuses have been doing is purposefully breeding cats with no conservation value in order to circumvent a loophole in the Federal Endangered Species Act that existed between 1998 and 2016, whereby the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, like took a step back from monitoring the trade in um, generic tigers. And that, that step back really enabled disreputable breeders from, um, from it, it enabled them to proliferate generic tigers in great numbers. So all of the tigers you see in roadside zoos, all the tigers you see in circuses, all the tigers you see in magic acts um, are presumptively generic and lack any conservation value. Tonight we're talking with Carney Ann Nasser. Carney Ann is a uh, professor, also a big cat expert and an animal protection attorney. Um, Carney Ann, most people didn't even understand uh, what big cat trading was, what uh, these roadside zoos were, any of this stuff, until they happened to stumble upon a docu-series on Netflix called Tiger King. And it happened to feature a guy who went by the name of Joe Exotic that was just a, a character, no matter how you describe him, um, that was in some ways people describe it as watching a car wreck in action and you just can't turn away. Um, tell us what was the premise of Tiger King. What were they trying to do there? Well, here's the thing. Tiger King, I have a big problem with what they were trying to do there because <laughs> the makers of what I, I call it a reality show, 
Um, and the makers of Tiger King had said, had represented that they were going to make Blackfish for big cats. And for people who aren't familiar with Blackfish, Blackfish was a really, really well done award-winning documentary that, um, that traced the history of captive use of orcas and, and SeaWorld. Um, and really opened a lot of people's eyes to the suffering of, of orcas and other cetaceans in captivity in these small tanks. Um, and so that's a true documentary. Um, but, you know, and I've had, I've had a, a really amazing award-winning documentary filmmaker on my podcast to talk about his take on the ethics of the making of Tiger King and his you know, his, his statement, his perception of Tiger King, that it was, quote, deliberately misleading. And, and I agree with that. Um, so, in, in what way? Know, Tiger- I hate to interrupt you because I want you to continue your thought, yeah. but what, in what way yeah. were we misled? What was, what was the misleading part? Well, viewers were really misled. The, the way that a lot of the, the vignettes were positioned was to make Joe Exotic seem like he was somehow – just, you know, kind of a railroaded guy like a victim. Um, who had been really um who, who just, you know, was maybe quirky, but not as bad as he'd been made out to seem. And, you know, he Joe Exotic's a monster. <laughs> you know, he has a long history mm. of mistreating. Yeah, I think animals. in some ways, some ways people might walk away thinking that in some parts of what what he was doing, he was a victim. Exactly, and that's 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 super problematic. The other thing that was very misleading was that the the reality show, you know, had it been a documentary, there would have been a very very clear understanding by viewers at the end of it of the difference between a roadside zoo and an accredited sanctuary, and you know the the way that Big Cat Rescue, um, the DFAS accredited sanctuary, was filmed was to show a feeding area rather than a 20-acre habitat. You know, it was, it was, it was filmed in, in, a, in a way that would make it seem like they're all the same. And, and that is, that's deliberately misleading. You know, like, like my friend Mike Weber, the documentary filmmaker, says, you know, films don't write themselves. Um, scripts don't write themselves. Um, narratives don't write themselves. This was done deliberately in order to to make a more salacious Jerry Springer like mm-hmm. show, which you know plays well. <laughs> you know, especially when you're on lockdown in a quarantine, yeah. um, it is like a train wreck, like you said. But um, you know, there was no deep dive or any dive into the inherent cruelty of Joe's operation and that's well documented the problem and one of my biggest frustrations is that joe may have been new to a lot of viewers who saw tiger king and thought you know were captivated by that but you know for those of us in the animal law world we've been dealing with joe and trying to shut him down for at least a decade um and so his misdeeds his cruel treatment of animals his trafficking in animals has been something that has been reported on in the news, well documented by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the U.S. Department of Agriculture for many, many years. So um, that's 
that was all left out. You know, if you're a real documentary filmmaker, you do Freedom of Information Act requests. You get records. You obtain as much information. You interview experts. These filmmakers didn't interview. They didn't want to interview any experts. They only interviewed one expert, and that was um, Brittany Pete, who's an excellent animal protection attorney um, at the PETA Foundation, but they only introduced her position after showing a bunch of really incendiary photos of PETA protests that she had nothing to do with. So it's very, I mean, the whole thing was contrived to, um, to pitch a narrative that would, you know, play well to people who enjoy reality television. Um, and, you know, it, but it is not Blackfish for Tigers. It wasn't the educational, informative piece that had a call to action about what people can do to end the cruel treatment, the exploitation of big cats in the United States. So I don't think it was a missed opportunity. I think it was deliberately misleading. Um, and, uh, you know, those are just some of the ways that it misled. Now, I might not have this correct, but it seems to me, based on what I saw in that uh, docu-series, and what little bit I know outside of watching it, uh, much of the footage and much of what they had was actually stuff that uh, was be, was initially intended to be used for a reality television show, wasn't it? I, you know, I don't, I don't, I couldn't speak to specific clips like what was the, you know, I, I, I believe some of it was 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 shot actually by Joe. Yeah, exactly um, by him. Well. Yeah, right. And so. You know, this is, I think that the story was really told through Joe's lens. And as the judge said, you know, I went to the sentencing hearing in January when the judge sentenced him 22 years in federal prison. Um, you know, he, Joe is a master manipulator. That's a quote from the judge, master manipulator. And so that is, that's what people, that's, that's whose story people were given. It was the story through the lens of a master manipulator. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate. However, it did provide an opportunity to have discussions about the issue because people have been captivated by the topic because, I mean, even if you take Joe out of the equation, even if you take this, you know, like country music lip syncing, <laughs> running for governor, running for president, like, um, guy out of the equation, then you still have a very, very compelling topic, which is, um, you know, the use of tigers for entertainment, the wildlife trafficking that exists in the United States in order for people to purchase tigers as pets, keep them in their backyards. This is, you know, it's a subject that people have, you know, perked up an interest in hearing more about. So it has created an opportunity to pivot to conversations that actually are productive, factual, and have some hope of, of, of creating some real change. There are a lot of other people involved in the uh, sh the the show, I'll call it for now. Uh, yeah. A lot of other names, a lot of other people. One of them is Carol Baskin. Yeah. Where does Carol Baskin fit on your in, in your radar on the list of good or bad uh, uh, keepers of big cats? Well, just to put things in perspective, there are hundreds of facilities in the United States that house big cats. 
only 15 of those facilities have been certified um, and accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries and given their highest level of accreditation. These are the facilities that um, provide vast species-specific habitats that have state-of-the-art veterinary care that are um, capable of providing for these animals financially, that um, have experts on staff to care for them, that never use them for entertainment, that are nonprofits and not profiting off of the animals. Um, and Terrell Baskin Sanctuary is one of those 15. So that's, I mean, that's also comes back to another issue that I have with Tiger King is because the, the filmmaker, and I love the way um, there was a, a journalist with Outside Magazine who said, you know, Eric Good, who made Tiger King, is a hotel developer and nightclub owner. And the quote is, you know, he brought all of the, like, intellect and ethics to the making of Tiger King that you would expect from a nightclub owner. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, not, um, it's not a documentary. And he purposefully did not delve into the difference between Big Cat Rescue and Joe Exotic's facility because it would, it would have interrupted his false narrative that it was like a Hatfield versus McCoy kind of personal drama and the tigers were totally lost in the mix. So, um, yeah, people, the sanctuaryfederation.org is the website for, for GFAS. If people are looking for um, accredited big cat sanctuaries and want to know more about them and the very, very rigorous standards that they have to meet that exceed those of our accredited AZA zoos, um, so, you know, I've seen, I've been to Big Cat Rescue multiple times. I know Carol and Howard Baskin, um, and they have, uh, you know, one of the most state-of-the-art veterinary facilities on site and surgical suites that I've ever seen um, for specifically for Big Cats. Like, this is um, the way that they and their sanctuary were portrayed was completely outrageous to me. Well, I've got to ask you this question then as well, uh, since you do know them personally. Much was made about the fact that uh, Carol's first husband uh, disappeared. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, one one of my thoughts is that you know there's a reason that no reputable news source want, like latched on to that false narrative that was debunked decades ago. And about. they just, and they just didn't give that information to viewers of Tiger King. That was something that that Eric was willing to go down a road that yeah. no reputable right, news right. source was would touch, and um, and so you know, and, and and at the end of the day, regardless of what has happened in any of these individuals' personal lives, um, if anybody's making blackfish for tigers, if anybody's making a documentary that's really going to expose America's tiger crisis with, with, with accuracy um, and give people a clear idea of what's going on with wildlife trafficking right here in continental United States, then 
there would be no questions at the end of it about, you know, how what happened to somebody's right. ex-husband. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, sure, yeah. Um, it's uh, that that was debunked many many years ago, and so it's tell it's us just one yet another piece that that fit nicely into Eric Good's false narrative that he was trying to sell. Tell us how this whole tiger or exotic animal trade works. Where do the animals come from? How do they get here? And how do people end up owning them? So all big cats in the United States are captive bred. All the tigers in the United States are captive bred. We're not, even the accredited zoos are not importing tigers. Um, they're not, you know, you can't capture a tiger from the wild. Um, so all these cats are, are bred in captivity. Um, only the, the only purebred cats are the 250 or so who are in Association of Zoos and Aquariums managed breeding programs, and those animals never leave that program. They stay in that program. So, you know, the the AZA zoos they're not they're not selling tigers to um, for pets. Um, they're not providing them to be used in magic acts. They're they're not they're keeping those cats in their breeding program, and they actually have. Um, a moratorium on breeding the generic tigers, whereas roadside zoos try to breed as many generic tigers as possible in order to perpetuate the cub petting business. But the roadside zoos really depend on the ability to dump big cats into the pet trade. And that's because it's only legal for a roadside zoo to offer a big cat for public contact between approximately 8 and 12 weeks of age, which means that these cats have a very, very limited sort of span where they're, they can be profitable to a roadside zoo. And these cub encounters are very lucrative. Yeah. They range from, you know, $50 to in the thousands per session. And the records that I've seen have shown that facilities offer these young cubs who should be in a dark area with their mothers away from human contact um, up to 60 public handling sessions a day. So that math is, you know, <laughs> it's it's clear how yeah. lucrative that is. And once that cat ages out and becomes too old, too unmanageable, too dangerous, too expensive, then, you know, these, these facilities need a constant supply of cats, but they also need a place to dump the ones that are going to be just a financial and safety liability. You know, it costs $10,000 a year just to feed a tiger. So... That's where the pet trade comes in. And there used to be a publication called the Animal Finder's Guide. It was a, it was like a monthly classified subscription magazine for the exotic pet trade. And, you know, I know all the, all the animal protection nonprofits all subscribed to it, too, because they wanted to monitor what was going on with the purchase and sale of exotic animals. And you open up the Animal Finder's Guide and see, you know, Every month, without fail, tigers available for free or for a couple hundred bucks once they're past that 12-week age point where they're no, they can no longer be used for photo ops. Um, I think a lot of people would be surprised that they may have paid more for their dog than it would cost to buy a tiger. I mean, I know I adopted my dog from a shelter. And I, you know, I, I made a $250 tax deductible donation to the animal shelter where I adopted him. That's still more 
than a lot of people would necessarily have to spend to get a tiger um, off the Animal Finder's Guide. Um, so you see tigers, bears, monkeys, you name it, exotic animals galore, want ads, um, you know, for sale ads, um, exotic animal auction um, notifications of upcoming exotic animal auctions where a variety of different species would be sold. Um, so it's, it's just something that has been the, the dumping ground for the roadside zoos so that they can just constantly be breeding, constantly have a supply of cubs for cub handling, and then have a place to dump these cats when they're done with them. Or in Joe Exotic's case, also, you know, one of his other methodologies of dealing with, with a surplus was to just shoot them in the head. Oh, um, that's part of what he was convicted for. Those were the criminal violations of the Federal Endangered Species Act that that accounted for part of that 22-year prison sentence. But um, so this is all interlinked. Um, and, you know, you're not supposed to be able to buy a tiger. There's The Federal Endangered Species Act prohibits the use of tigers for commercial purposes. Um, it prohibits the purchase and sale and across state lines unless you have a permit from the federal government and you can meet a, um, a, a demonstration that the reason that you're seeking the permit has some nexus to conservation of big cats in the wild. And obviously, no private owner can meet that standard. I mean, it's the, there's, the Endangered Species Act exists to prevent and prohibit and, and squash that kind of illicit activity with imperiled species. But it happens. Um, you know, it's, it's happening because it's so easy for these people to move these animals. And the problem also is they know that the likelihood of getting caught is very, very slim. But the financial gain and the potential financial gain from, from trafficking in these animals is extremely high. So we have a, you know, high reward, low risk situation that's created a perfect storm. For trafficking of, of big cats and other exotic animals in the United States. You know, to be fair, they're their own worst enemy because those tiger cubs are so darn cute. <laughs> <laughs> they are very cute. Um, they are very cute. I'm, I'm really happy that the cat that, um, that who, who I helped rescue here in New Orleans um, has, you know, she was on death's doorstep when, when she got rescued and she's a white tiger and I just as a footnote white tigers aren't a separate subspecies I know that Siegfried and Roy yeah I was gonna bring them up been very successful at misleading people into thinking they're royal white Bengal tigers and some fit no they're they're inbred for a recessive gene um, that carries not only the white coloring but frequently blindness kidney problems it's mm. inherently inhumane to try to breed to create a white tiger and yet many roadside zoos breed them in great numbers as Doc Antle, um, who was who was depicted in Tiger King, has acknowledged like white tigers are crowd pleasers. They're they look more exotic um, to, to the public. And so um, but they're in the wild there have been twelve white tigers in the last century confirmed because it's an anomaly. Um, and the Association of Zoos and Aquariums has a breeding moratorium on white tigers because they're they're presumptively generic. They have no conservation value. 
Um, but there's a lot of, of, of deliberately misleading information out there in roadside zoos about white tigers. But, but they are very cute. And the tiger here in New Orleans, she was white tiger, and, um, you know, she was infested with parasites. She had chronic diarrhea. Her foot pads were cracked. She was so sick. And I'm so grateful to the Audubon Zoo for the um, life-saving veterinary care they provided her with. Um, and she's thriving out at Lions, Tigers, and Bears. DFAS accredited sanctuary out in Alpine, California, and is just amazing to see her transformation. But they're they're cute, and they're the most iconic of the cat species. There's a reason that over 1,400 schools, universities, and professional sports teams have decided they want to be, they want their mascot to be a big cat. Um, so it's uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> they're, <laughs> They're awfully cute. So we we know that Joe Exotic is serving a 22-year, I think it is, sentence Mm -hmm. for his actions uh, as it relates to all of this. What about some of the other folks involved in the Tiger King's program? You know, we saw like Jeff Lowe and there's a bunch of others. I can't remember all of their names. But what's going on on with those folks? Yeah, well, and and just on the the prison sentence um, quickly, in the federal system, there's there's no parole. So Joe will have to serve at least 85% of that sentence. So he's looking at at least 19 years in prison. So I know that, you know, there are a lot of animal lovers who are like, oh, he's just going to, you know, he'll probably get out in like half that time. Well, no, that, that, that may potentially could have been true if this was a state crime. But this is a federal, these were multiple federal crimes in the federal system. And there's no parole. So 85%, um, so 19 years. But um you know, his cohort, Jeff Lowe, um, is now under serious scrutiny um, and investigation by the U.S. Department of, of Agriculture and a number of other agencies um, because of the condition of the animals at GW Exotic, which is now his park. Um, just horrible pictures. You can find some of them online if you're interested in seeing what's going on there, but just open wounds and fly infestations of these big cat's ears. Um, these animals don't look well, even to an untrained eye. It's clear that something's amiss here. And so he is he's under scrutiny right now. Um, I mentioned earlier that Tim Stark, who operates wildlife in need roadside zoo which is like a cub petting place um carney ann Ann, can you remind me who tim stark was in this i don't remember who this was Stark went into business with jeff lowe um toward the end they were collaborating they were they were building a zoo he said just breed more tigers just breed more he was also very um you know he was a, a there were sort of like, I feel like, four main other roadside zoo owners depicted, and it was Jeff Lowe and Tim Stark who, um, you know, they teamed up after Jeff and Joe Exotic fell out. And then there was Mario Tabro, um, who, you know, uh, is, is the guy who had been, who talked about his, his prison sentence related to um, the drug trafficking and related to um, homicide. Actually, he had served a a prison sentence for homicide. Um, And he was one of the other people. Um, And then there was um, Doc Antle, 
who was, he's the one who had like the very, very specific control over the women. Yeah, he had like multiple wives or something. Didn't he have multiple? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So just, I know it's like, it's like a game, of, a game of Clue here, like <laughs> yeah. all these different characters and yeah. keeping them straight. But, um, but yeah, so so Tim Stark is up in um, in Indiana, and he has a um, Federal Endangered Species Act case pending against him. Um, Jeff Lowe has also been swept up into that. Um, you know, some of the situations that are. Um, you know, described in this particular litigation involve the cruel um, declawing of of cubs with such rudimentary barbaric techniques as like using hammers and pliers and then refusing to give the cubs veterinary treatment and to the point that they died. Mm-hmm. Um, declawing is something that violates the Federal uh, Animal Welfare Act for big cats at least it's, it's illegal for exhibitors to declaw them, but um, the citations aren't usually that high. So a lot of exhibitors will do it and they'll frequently not actually take the cats to a veterinarian. They'll just do it themselves. Um, and it leaves these animals if they survive um, permanently crippled and lame um, and in chronic pain for the rest of their lives. So is extremely cruel procedure. It's a partial amputation. Um, but so they, he's also, Wildlife in Need and Tim Stark have had their license to exhibit animals permanently revoked. That means he's not going to be able to open his doors to offer those cub petting experiences again. He had a window of time where he could have appealed that revocation by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, they also levied over $300,000 in penalties against him for his mistreatment of animals. That's a really, really big fine for the USDA. They usually just give slaps on the wrist. But, um, but so, so he's looking like his, his, his business is circling the drain at this point now that he can't actually operate as an exhibitor anymore. That, that USDA license, I mean, it only costs 30 bucks to apply for one, but it is the threshold point to do business legally. It's not a gold star. It doesn't mean like you're doing a great job. It's not like a certification or accreditation. It's just the bare minimum for somebody to open their doors to, to be an exhibitor of animals to the public. Um, and that's been permanently revoked. Once it's revoked, it's a one and done. Um, you don't can't get it back. You can't get, um, you know, your, your husband or wife can't get one for you or in their name, that would be circumvention of a license revocation. There are rules against that. So, um, it's looking like he's done. So, um, you know, these are, the dominoes are falling. It's very heartening to see a lot of precedent setting litigation happening. You know, we saw with Joe Exotic, a federal criminal case, he was prosecuted by the U S attorney's office. But we're also seeing civil suits under the Endangered Species Act brought against a lot of these exhibitors, like Tim Stark, like another facility in Florida that wasn't depicted in Tiger King, but it was called Dade City Wild Things, and they used to offer swim with tigers experiences. They are now out of business because of a ruling that a judge made in an Endangered Species Act case against them that found that you know, premature maternal separation, forcible removal of cubs from their mothers, like we saw in Tiger King. There was a very brief 
frame that showed um, a tiger being dragged through the cyclone fence. Yeah, I remember um, that. Immediately mm-hmm. upon birth. And that's, that's really the industry standard with roadside zoos. That, that treatment now has been found by a federal judge to violate the Endangered Species Act. So we're seeing some really, really important things happening in the legal world, um, some, some important precedent that's really going to help us dismantle the abusive, exploitative traffickers of big cats. Um, so I am hopeful, getting back to your the earlier question, I'm hopeful about what will happen for big cats here in captivity, and I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to help them in the wild, too. We uh, This is going by very quickly. We only have a few minutes left. I needed to ask you, because I was a little confused about this, what is Welcome to the Jungle? Um, Welcome to the Jungle is a law review article that I wrote about, um, it, it is about why we have a tiger card. Like, how did we get here? Um, and it traces the, you know, I really lay a lot of the responsibility at the feet of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The USDA is supposed to, quote, ensure the humane care and treatment of animals who are used in exhibition. And rather than doing that, they've shirked their responsibility and have actually furthered and encouraged the cruel, abusive treatment of big cats by allowing cub petting to happen. So they are incentivizing by saying, it's okay for you, despite our regulations that say that cubs should only be handled in situations consistent with their good welfare, you can, you can let them be used for cub petting. Um, that has incentivized this puppy mill-style breeding of tigers by roadside zoos in the United States. And when you couple that with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's um, lack of enforcement of um, some of the regulations relating to oversight and paperwork about transfers of tigers if they're generic for a period of 18 years between 1998 and 2016, we have this proliferation of tigers who fell into a virtual black hole where we have no meaningful way of tracking where they went, where they, where they have, how they've been housed, how they've been transferred, who has them. Nothing. So we, whenever somebody asks me how many tigers are there in the United States, there's no way for us to really put a finger on, even on a reasonable estimate. There are a lot of people uh, that watched Tiger King and became very emotional about it. Uh, There are people that have gone through uh, their lives being emotional about these types of topics without seeing Tiger King. How can people get involved and help? Well, I completely relate to that. I know that it's, it's, it's hard, and, and right now we have a lot of issues that deserve our attention um, and our concern, and this is just but one of them. Um, and one of the most important things that people can do right now, aside from, the, from educating their family about never going to a roadside zoo, never paying to play with a tiger or a lion or a monkey or a bear, any of these exotic animal encounters, um, That's step one, but if you want to put an end to the abuse and exploitation of big cats in the United States, then you can contact your federal legislators and ask them to co-sponsor the Big Cat Public Safety Act, which would provide some uniformity of law that we're really lacking in the United States. We've got such a patchwork of state laws, and 
really not very effectively written or enforced federal laws. So this would make a clear blanket prohibition of tigers and other big cats kept as pets in the U.S., which is a common sense. Um, and then it would also prohibit public encounters and handling of big cats who are kept by exhibitors. So it would allow exhibitors to keep their tigers, but it would say, you know what, no more photo ops, selfies for dating profiles, no more swim with tigers, no more handling, which would really, really do a lot to diminish the, the incentive for this um, horrible puppy mill style breeding. Once we put an end to the public contact and the photo ops and the bottle feeding, then we can, we can disincentivize the, the irresponsible breeding that leads to the dumping, that leads to the, you know, things like what Joe Exotic did, but shooting these cats. So, um, so yeah, so contact your federal legislators and ask them to be a co-sponsor of the Big Cat Public Safety Act. Carney, and this has been a great discussion. Uh, thank you so much for your time, your work, and your dedication to this cause. Uh, it seems to be a very important one, and I get particularly disturbed when I hear about these dwindling, dwindling populations, not just of wild cats, but of elephants and other uh, very precious animals as they their numbers are becoming dangerously close to extinction, and we've got to act now or we'll lose them forever. That's true. I appreciate you having me. It's important that I keep having discussions like this. Well, again, thank you. And again, your website is the best place for people to go to follow your work? Yes, indeed. It's carneyannasser.com. All right. All right. Have a great night. Take care of yourself, and hopefully we'll get you back on at some point. Yes, stay healthy. Take care. All (laughs) All right. right. I look forward to it. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.